When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Duffin Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we talk southeastern upland bird hunting and the conservation legislation and policy you should know about with John Colclasier of Congressional Sportsman Foundation. Welcome to the show for episode number 95. Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription today. Know where you stand with Onyx. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. 
and by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots that stand the test of time. Use the promo code PUP10 to save 10% from GumleafUSA.com. And by CZ USA Shotguns, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, from the Bob White and Sharptail side-by-sides, which happen to be my favorites, to the Wing Shooter Elite and Upland Ultralight over-and-unders, CZ has a shotgun for you. Head over to cz-usa.com to check out all of their shotguns. And by Turnbull Restoration Company, the most recognized name in antique and vintage firearm restoration, period-correct metal finishes, and custom reproductions of iconic firearms, Turnbull has been dedicated to the faithful and accurate restoration of classic American shotguns for over 35 years. If you want to learn more about what Turnbull Restoration Company does, head over to turnbullrestoration.com forward slash upland to see the complete restoration process of a parker shotgun that's turnbullrestoration.com forward slash upland and finally by dakota 283 kennels kennels built to last a lifetime one piece rotomold design frame steel door everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip find out more about dakota 283 kennels all of their products by visiting dakota283.com all right this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is kyle from colorado kyle sent me an email he recently discovered upland hunting and bird dogs he was on a road trip for 35 hours said he listened to the project upland podcast the whole way so just for suffering through that kyle we're going to send you a t-shirt thanks for listening buddy everybody else listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway all you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show you could leave us a rating leave us a review click those stars and leave us a review in your podcast app subscribe to the podcast share the podcast send us some feedback or a guest suggestion like kyle did email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com all right we're jumping into today's interview with john colclasier from Congressional Sportsman Foundation. This is an interview that John and I recorded back in January, going into the archives a little bit here. John's bird season was still going at the time. Mine was wrapped up. We talked a little bit about upland hunting in the southeast where John is located, and we later delve into Congressional Sportsman Foundation and some of the things that they work on each and every day to maintain the opportunities and the access that myself and the rest of the upland hunters listening to this hopefully appreciate. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast from Congressional Sportsman Foundation, John Colclasier. All right, John Colclasier of the Congressional Sportsman Foundation, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. How are you on this Friday morning, man? I'm great, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Really excited uh, about the opportunity to speak with you. Absolutely. I'm really glad you could join us on the show today. Excited to talk to you about some important issues to sportsmen and women, as well as a little bit of upland hunting conversation, which we can't help ourselves, but we always got to mix that in. John, why don't you start us off with some of the basics? Tell us where you're at location-wise and what you do for Congressional Sportsman Foundation. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, I live in Richmond, Virginia. I'm from North Carolina, but I've been in Richmond about the last three years. Uh, I work remotely. Uh, Congressional Sportsman's Foundation is uh, based in Washington, D.C., but we have folks spread out all over across the country that you know work on, uh, concentrate on state policy and uh, state issues. And um, 
So yeah, I work out of my home office and I, I cover the, I was covering six states and now I'm covering for the time being the, the entire Southeast. So I've got 12 states and do a, do a little bit of traveling uh, through that, but it's good. And I get to squeeze in some hunts here and there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, uh, I've been fortunate to work from home a little bit, uh, in a couple different positions. I do currently, uh, you know, Fridays are interesting when you're working from home, especially when hunting season is open. You have, you have hunting season still open down there, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Uh, grouse in Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina still open. Quail in Virginia closes at the end of the month. Uh, we just, uh, Woodcock just went out on the 15th, but yeah, still a few bird seasons open. So your, your superiors aren't going to listen to this until later. So is there any chance you're going to sneak out hunting this afternoon? <laughs> no, I wish. I wish. It's a, uh, I mean, even if I, even if I could, I've got, it's a busy, busy time of year, uh, for uh, a lot of state legislatures are in session. So, you know, we're tracking and analyzing bills and trying to stay on top of everything. So I'll probably slip out tomorrow and, uh, hit up a, a local WMA for, for some quail we uh happened into a couple weeks ago by accident uh we were after some woodcocks so i'm gonna try to find find that find a couple of cubbies again before the season's out hopefully good deal good deal take advantage of it while you can we're uh we're covered up in snow up here and it's uh it's oh, definitely, yeah. definitely not hunting season right now but it actually we have had a really nice stretch of I would say mild weather, you know, anything over 20 degrees feels pretty balmy this time of year. So, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to spend the weekend up on the North shore and do some snowshoeing and some skiing and stuff. Nice. And hopefully, hopefully I'll see some grouse. I just won't be shooting at them. So your, your seasons, you're totally done for bird season. It's done. Yeah. Grouse, rough grouse ends usually around the end of the year. And that's pretty much, that's pretty much as late as it goes. I mean, you could go out and hunt, uh, like snowshoe hare or something like okay. that. But other than that, we're pretty well shut down and frozen up. Wow. A lot of people turn to ice fishing this time of year, but that's not, uh, that's not so much for me. I've, I've done a lot of fishing in my life and I really enjoy it, but I have come to appreciate active winter activities. I like to stay active and I sure. like to keep moving. So that's why I'd rather, uh, I'd rather cross country ski through grouse cover than go sit on a bucket somewhere. Sure. Sure. <laughs> do some scouting for next season. Yeah. And I know, and I know there's a lot of, a lot of ice fishermen probably that listen to this that cringe and, and I, Ice fishing is, it can be fun, but it's, uh, it's not quite for me. <laughs> I hear you. Can you give us a little background on Congressional Sportsman Foundation? Cause prior to some of the phone calls and emails that I've had with you over the past few months, I wasn't really familiar with them. So I don't want to overlook that at all. Sure. Yeah. I mean, our website's a great resource. So I'll, I'll uh, point folks there. But, uh, yeah, the Congressional Sportsman Foundation is, uh, you know, 501c3 nonprofit organization, and you know we're dedicated to uh, protecting and advancing um, hunting, angling, trapping, and recreational shooting. And so we work on uh, any or pretty much uh, most issues that are going to impact the ability for hunters and anglers to you know get outside and a lot of conservation issues. And uh, the CSF was formed or was formed in the late 80s to support the Congressional Sportsmen's Caucus, which is the largest bipartisan caucus on. Capitol Hill, and uh, later the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation expanded, took that same kind of concept, and brought it to the states and formed the National Assembly of Sportsmen's Caucuses, which is a umbrella organization for the actually now 49 state level sportsmen's caucuses. So, for example, in your state or here in Virginia, you know we have the Virginia Legislative Sportsmen's Caucuses, uh, Sportsmen's Caucus, and uh, legislators that uh, understand or care about or. or um, either they're hunters or anglers themselves, or they understand the importance of, uh, hunting and angling to, 
to their constituents and to the economy and the system of conservation funding, you know, they'll, they'll uh, join the caucus and, and get involved. And it's a good way for us to uh, interact with uh, you know, policymakers and uh, educate them on uh, issues of importance to hunters and anglers. And we do that through a number of different ways by, you know, we publish a, a set of uh, issue briefs annually that we distribute. And that, those are also available on the website. And it's a good resource. Um, you know, we track and analyze all sorts of bills, you know, ranging from uh, firearms issues to uh, forest management issues to Sunday hunting bills to license exemption. So just kind of runs the gamut um, from, you know, anything that's kind of impact a, a sportsman or a sportswoman, you know, to get outside and have a good time. Yeah, gotcha. I definitely jotted down a few of the sort of the areas. The, I'm sure they're just a, just a sampling of some of the stuff that you guys work on, but we're going to talk about a few of those a little bit later. How did you, John, wind up working for CSF? What was kind of your career arc to get into that position? Yeah, so I studied uh, forestry in undergrad and then just being a, um, I actually have a law degree as well. And then when I was, I was working at a land trust in, uh, you know, uh, my home state of North Carolina, working on drafting conservation easements and um, just as a, end of, you know, as a, it, I guess, uh, engaged sportsman that was concerned about a few issues in my home state, uh, namely uh, the inability to hunt on um, Sundays on public lands. And also uh, we have you know, two national forests there, the Nantahilla and Pisgah, and um, the grouse populations have been declining for, you know, the, since the late 80s when the, tip, uh, the amount of timber harvesting declined precipitously. So I basically got involved through, as a volunteer sportsman and started uh, reaching out and actually my <laughs> uh, 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 former uh, colleague B. Frederick, I started bugging him saying, hey, yeah. you know what, how, uh, how can I, you know, uh, help move the needle on these issues that I care about? And that's how, I, that's how I learned about the organization. And, you know, fast forward a few years, here I am. <laughs> awesome. Man, forestry and law, those are, uh, that's a, that's an interesting combo. The forestry catches my attention, obviously, as a, as a grouse hunter. That's something that I, I was really pretty uneducated on forestry up until about, I would say five years ago when, when I spent some time working for the Rough Grouse Society, obviously at that point you get pretty significant exposure to forestry. And since then I have, uh, I've tried to kind of buddy up to any of any forester I meet just because sure. they have so much knowledge and Intel, uh, that is of interest to me as a grouse hunter. I just, I just find it very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about, I think it's, I don't want to skip over the, the status of forestry as much as you feel comfortable, you know, talking about it, like the status of forestry in the Southern Appalachians, in Pisgah and Nantahala. Sure. You know, we're, sure. we're hearing about it a lot. And it's, uh, I believe, I can't remember if it was the Nantahala or the Pisgah, but one of those forests is featured in the upcoming uh, public grouse film that we did with backcountry hunters and anglers. So it's kind of, it's top of mind for me and like sure. to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm not a, uh, forestry expert i can just kind of tell you from what what my experience and uh yeah so yep. i i grew up um hunting pisgah and Hill a lot with my, my grandfather and my uncle and you know his friends and i would always hear the tales of how many grouse they flushed back in the day and you know 20 birds 15 birds which might be kind of common for your neck of the woods and mm -hmm. um so there's always those tales of grandeur growing up and then you know when i was a kid getting you know uh, being hauled around and carrying my bb gun on grouse hunts we'd you know, maybe fly five or six, three or four birds, that kind of thing. So we still got in, got, got into a few birds. And then, you know, fast, that was, uh, 
you know, I guess that was in the early nineties. And that's really when, uh, the fort, the plan, they had the, the national forest required to develop management plan for their, you know, each forest and that plan, I think it was the 87 plan. It was appealed. And then the 94 amendment basically just dropped the timber goals significantly. Um, and then on top of that, there's just been a lot of, um, opposition from, you know, certain groups that are opposed to active forest management and the forest hasn't even hit their goals, their minimum goals, you know, for the timber production or young forest creation since then. So the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission actually has a really good resource for uh, gra- or really good data on it. Uh, in addition to their drumming surveys and, you know, those sort of um, uh, biological observations, they have an annual uh, uh, grouse uh, uh, co- ad, uh, avid grouse hunter cooperator survey where you yep. log your number of hours where you're hunting public versus private, how many birds you fly, how many you kill, you know, if you see a woodcock or rabbit. So we've got, I think it's maybe like 30 years of the, of those logs. And it's a, you know, they, if you look at the graphs they make and the data they pull from that, the number of birds flush has gone down significantly. Number of trips with no birds fl- flush has gone up. Um, just, you know, all the, all the indicators of the grouse population has been plummeting for a long time. And it's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of on life support right now. I mean, there's still guys that get out there and, you know, find, do a good job and scratch right. out and know how to hunt and find the birds, but you got to know where to hunt. You got to know how to, you got to have good dogs. Not necessarily people do hunt without dogs, but yeah, that's basically long and short. It's a long-term decline. Uh, and, uh, and there's a serious, uh, paucity of young forest habitat. I think it's less than 0.01% of uh, 1.1 million acres. So, um, for your average public land hunter, uh, or the, or just someone trying to get somebody interested in grouse hunting, you know, it's, it's difficult because yeah, while you do have access to a lot of, a lot of land, you know, act, I think I would also say that access encompasses the ability to access, you know, maybe a robust or at least a reasonable population where you're going to have a chance right. of finding some birds. And, you know, if you take a kid grouse hunting or a friend grouse hunting and they walk 10, 12 miles a day and they might fly one or two birds and not even get to pull the trigger. I mean, it's, it's just hard to get people interested in it with that, with that limited exposure to birds. Yeah, certainly. Grouse hunting is not an, it's not the easiest kind of up on hunting or any hunting for that matter to get into to begin with, but then to make it even tougher to have, you know, low bird populations and the terrain that you guys hunt, which I'm not familiar with, but I, I have heard, uh, I, I know how tough it can be, or at least I've heard how tough it can be. Um, that brings to mind, do you listen to the hunting dog podcast with Ron Bain? I have, I have absolutely. Did you catch the recent one? I'm blanking on the guy's name, but he just interviewed, I was a guy that he had had on before that I'm pretty sure hunts grouse in Virginia and they had a, it was a great conversation. I mean, he still, he kind of said some of the same things. I mean, he's, he, he still gets out there and he, there are birds there, which is great because right, it's not too late, but obviously things need to change if the birds are going to be even close to what they once were. But, uh, that was a, that was a really good conversation. And it just, I mean, he talks about the terrain and, and how he finds the birds. And it's just, it's always fascinating to me, the variety of, of, different habitats and terrain that the rough grouse can inhabit i mean it's just of course i want to i'd love to experience hunting them in other places and down there would be one of them for sure sure yeah open invite um the hunt north carolina can show you around for sure i'm not i would defer to any uh to some uh, 
native Virginian somewhere to hunt Virginia. I just sure. haven't had <laughs> haven't had the opportunity to get out as much here as I would have liked. But uh, North Carolina, and I hunt West Virginia a little bit as well, uh, since it's a little easier poke for me to get to from Richmond, and I have gotten to gotten to some birds over there too. So I, I caught wind of a little bit of your intro to upland hunting. It sounds like you were out there when you were younger, carrying a BB gun around with maybe some family members. Talk about a little bit about that first exposure and some of those experiences. Were there bird dogs along? What kind of dogs were they? Sure. You know, what yeah. was that like? Yeah, I guess really first started, if you want to, I don't know if you count dove as upland, but, you know, being, oh, for uh, sure. being carried on dove hunts, you know, second season when it's freezing and sitting out there when it's dark uh, <laughs> with my granddad and my mom would come and my, my brother and my uncle. And uh, so dove hunting was the first exposure. And then uh, as far as grouse hunting, that was with my grandfather and uh, some of his good friends, um, uh, that really instrumental and, you know, good mentors for for getting me interested in the sport. And uh, they had, we had a, my granddad always had setters growing, or he had a pointer when it, uh, before I was born, but um, well, I said setters growing up, and that was just kind of the common dog to have for a lot of folks in Western North Carolina. Although uh, another good friend of his yeah, usually had a, a Springer or two, which is always fun to hunt with as well. So yeah, we'd uh, you know hunt some private property, but we'd also predominantly hunt uh, Dana Hill or, or Pisgah National Forest, anywhere from Mitchell County all the way over to the Southwest, you know, Jackson County, Macon County area, and uh, just. A lot of walking, a lot of, uh, you know, cold experiences as a young kid and uh, maybe not what I wanted to do versus, you know, hanging out with some friends or playing, you know, soccer <laughs> or, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, it's a yeah, value, all those memories. And that's, you know, that's why I'm here today. Yeah, obviously left a lasting impression on you and, and kept you coming back for more, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of, you know, high school, I didn't hunt as much and uh my granddad always kept dogs and then in, in college he still had some dogs uh lou and bandit at that time lou was a sweet little liver uh white setter uh and she was fantastic and so in college we'd I, uh come back home with some trips with some uh, college friends and we'd go up to our little hunting cabin and you know hunt for a couple of days and you know maybe ha maybe kill a few birds maybe not that, that sort of thing and then I adopted a, a setter in college, Willie, and uh, he, he, I didn't hunt with him. He was deaf, and uh, he was just a good good setter, you know, kind of pet dog to have around. And then sure. uh, seven years ago, I got my, my, my own setter, uh, uh, Susie, who I have now. She just, like I said, just turned seven in November. And so when I got her, that's when I really started bird hunting, and I was living back in North Carolina, North Carolina at the time. And uh, you know, I could be, be on public land hunting in 15, 20 minutes from the house, and yeah, access to state game lands as well as uh, national forest. And so, you know, she and I hunted, I mean, like 30 days or more for the first few years. And I, I learned, she taught me so much about grouse hunting. And, and it, on top of that, that's when I was really, I uh, started, you know, had, had the forestry, uh, forestry background at that point. So I could kind of sure. co combine both, you know, just in the field experience with understanding habitat and just you know, scouring maps and uh, looking at using GIS to, to figure out where to go. But yeah, a lot of it's just, um, you know, people are asking, how do I get into grouse hunting? It's, um, I would just, anybody that's trying to get into grouse hunting in the Southern mountains, it's definitely good to get a mentor to kind of take you out and show you what to look for. Cause you can walk all day and not find birds. If you don't, if you don't know what you're doing, it's, it can be, uh, it, it can be a big hurdle for a new hunt, new hunter. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I I definitely know the feeling of uh, having sort of your first dog teach you a lot about birds. That was that was similar to my story arc. I 
I'd hunted rough grouse for a lot, a lot before I got that dog, but in the last five, six years, my education on rough grouse has, has gone way up because I, I find a lot more thanks to my dog and, and, and those are my friends, you know, but, uh, I'm curious actually as a, with your forestry background and you mentioned GIS, are you really into any specific GIS tools? Do you have any favorites? What, uh, what does that look like in practice for you? Well, at the time I was working at the land trust, we used GIS for you know, our conservation mapping. And so yep. I could kind of pull some things up there uh, in, my free, in my free time. But now I just, you know, I, I do use one of the apps to look at different parcels and property lines just to make sure I'm doing the right on the, in the right areas and not, not trespassing or anything because, Sure. You know, if you buy a map, even a, a nice or even a formal publication uh, with property lines on it, they're not very accurate. Once you start actually looking at um, parcels or look, you know, looking at a county GIS layer, you'll see that a publication that that you might buy at a, at a hiking store, there'll be an, you know a lot of inaccuracy. So, uh, but yeah, but nowadays I'm uh, I will either either I know where to go or some of the state. Uh, State agencies actually have uh, some really good resources, like the Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries. They even have a young forest, young forest finder, where you can pull up okay. some layers and see where different age cuts have you know taken place. Those aren't always uh, up to date or accurate either, but you can get you in the right area. And then you know the other thing I like to do is just you know, play around on Google Earth and scour and uh, just like oh wow, there's, there's a harvest there. there. There was a one there 15 years ago. It might be it might be aging out, but there's probably an old bird hanging around in there. If there's a seed yep. or something like that, so um, kind of a combination of everything. And um, yeah, what what do you do? Well, that's 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 really what I was getting at, and I was curious as to what was available to you. I use a really a combination of things. It's funny, I, a guy was messaging me yesterday, and I was talking a little bit about the various tools that I use. I my number one tool in the field is probably Onyx. Mm-hmm. Um, I use that a lot, obviously for the land ownership information, but they also have a good imagery base, and it's just a it's a easy to use, intuitive platform. So I use that a ton while I'm in the field. But that said, I, as a grouse hunter, I'm very very interested in where is the active forest management and sure. where are those cuts now. That kind of varies from state to state. I'm I'm in an interesting situation in that I I live in Duluth, but I'm right on the border of Wisconsin. So I hunt Minnesota and Wisconsin. Wisconsin has a great resource in that they have um, a game bird GIS layer, which is essentially rough grouse and woodcock. They'll they'll tell you where any aspen cut that's between five and twenty years old is uh, with wow. on on county, state, and I think even federal land. So it's kind of like the whole thing, which is, that's one of the best tools that I've seen out there. I started using it straight from the Wisconsin DNR website, but that layer is actually available in Onyx Hunt. Onyx Hunt has pulled that layer in. And so you can use, you can pull up those Aspen cuts right in Onyx. That's an incredible tool for me when I'm hunting in Wisconsin. And really for me, you know, the Aspen cuts, they're always a component of what I'm hunting. So I'm not necessarily looking for an aspen cut that i can go walk right through the middle of Mm -hmm. but if i see one here and i see one there i might say okay here's a nice line i can take up the edge of this one wrap around that one i mean and in this this country i mean this is what i'm familiar with but basically if you're in stuff like that you're gonna see birds if you just keep walking through the forest you know there's not i'm assuming here but i'm assuming there's a lot less dead space where i'm hunting as as opposed to where you're hunting 
Yeah, I think you're pretty uh, spot on there. We, uh, if you're in an area that has not had active management in the last 20 years, you're just very, it's going to be, you might come across a bird randomly, but you're, yep. it's, it's, not, it's pretty much not even worth uh, targeting. What are you going to see? There. Are you going to see 80 to 100 year old oak trees? Yeah, I mean, uh, most of the Appalachian forests are heavily cut over in, uh, you know, early 1900s or they've been cut over multiple times, but um, you know, a lot of the stands are your kind of 70 to 90, 60 to 80 year old stands, uh, a lot of yellow poplar, you know, the, you know, nowadays when they, when, when they, um, you know, conduct timber harvest, they'll, you know, do they'll, the type of harvest that they'll, uh, implement will be ones that are going to regenerate certain species they want. So they'll go in there mm-hmm. with like a seed sea tree or shelter wood harvest to, um, provide a little bit of, you want to have that sunlight to get the regeneration, but right, you know, like a yellow poplar is a, you know, will out compete oaks. So the, that's that's why it's good to go back into the stand later, and you know, with the prescribed fire, or, you know, or some herbicides. So you and some timber stand, TSI timber stand improvement, so you can, you know, basically try to mold or uh, influence the the influence the forest stand composition to uh, mm-hmm. what species are going to be most beneficial to wildlife. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good point to highlight too. Actually, that's something that, again, I've become more and more familiar with just talking to, I've got a good friend that's a forester up in my neck of the woods, but he talks about some of the same things, you know, when they're they're going, they always have a plan. They know exactly what they're trying to do, whether mm-hmm. or not that exactly happens. You know, you can't always predict how the, how a particular aspen stand is going to regenerate, or if you're trying to get oaks, that's one thing he talks about a lot is if you're trying to get oaks up, it's challenging because aspen will outcompete it and that'll right. shoot up. And the other thing that he fights with a lot is deer will get in there and the deer are going to browse down the oaks. And he has to, you almost have to get, you got to get the oaks up high enough where they can get past that deer browse level and they're beyond the aspen if you want to regenerate an oak stand. But I think it'd be interesting. Could you describe to me what would like a prime grouse cover look down there? You know, would it be a seven, eight year old cut regenerating with what what would it look like for you? Well, we'll just say across the landscape, it will not be what some people are some people might fear it's not just going to be vast clear cuts and right. you know no no forest it's actually you know grouse l- l- like a diversity of habitats so yep. you know there'll be some mature timber uh there'll be some middle-aged timber but as far as where you're going to find the grouse particularly during grouse season when they need that cover from you know avian predation um anywhere from 6 to 15 is prime for southern appalachian grouse you know we the difference between our neck of the woods and y'all's is that we we don't have aspen so yep. while aspen the aspen buds are probably a large percentage of a grouse's diet is that right mm-hmm. yes yeah. so, especially in the winter yep so we do have some very isolated pockets of big tooth aspen but th- those are you know those are pretty rare to be honest so yeah you're looking at stands uh, ideally from 6 to 15 would be prime uh, along riparian areas you know not they're not going to, they're going to have streamside management zones to protect water quality, um, but close to riparian areas. And, you know, also there's probably too much of it now because there's been a, a fire suppression, but we have a lot of rhododendron and mountain laurel and the, and mountain, those are both good for uh, thermal and escape cover. So you'll find birds that will, if there's a Creek running next, there's mature timber, a Creek with some rhododendron 
and then there's a harvest along the other side of it. You know, that's that's what I those are prime areas. And then north facing coves generally are gonna have a mixed mesophytic forest and there's gonna provide the herbaceous and other vegetation that grouse would need throughout other times of year. Um so and then, you know, it's also important to have, uh, you know, roads are in the Southern Appalachians are, you know, we, they consider them linear wildlife openings. So yep. the, the forest service work in conjunction with, you know, the state wildlife agency will maintain those roads. Ideally, if it was like your own property, you, you know, sow them in clover and, you know, sure. that sort of stuff. But on public lands, uh, you know, that's probably limited due to funding and those sort of issues. But, you know, the, those, those roads that they can feather the edges of the road, that'll provide that young forest early successional habitat as well. Um, so, you know, if it's all through mature timber, it's not going to be that great. But if you're kind of, if it's, you know, if, they, if they've done a, if the Forest Service has done a habitat project, when they analyze the area, they're not going to put, it's not going to be like a, if they're cutting, say, 500 acres total, it's not going to be one 500 acre cut. I mean, you know, it's going to be like 25 acres here, 30 acres here, 10 acres there, that sort of thing. So you would, you know, if they're, you'd want them to be ideally not so far apart, but they're going to be on, you know, other side of ridges and backside of coves and haulers and yep. that sort of stuff. What you're describing sounds essentially, you know, the species are different, but it's, it's nearly the same thing that I'm looking for up here. You know, you're looking for patch cuts, diversity of, of forests, and, and really that, none of that's going to come as breaking news to anybody that has pursued grouse for some time, but riparian areas, those are some of my favorite areas to target. You know, if it's a beaver swamp or any kind of water feature, I'll, I'll work the edge of that. I mean, that's, uh, that's exactly, uh, exactly the kind of stuff that we're looking for here as well. Yeah. So like the cuts, I mean, they do, they're, there's limited to what type of regenerate regeneration harvest they can do, i.e. clear cuts and limited by size and, a number of other factors, but yeah, any kind of regeneration harvest is best. They do do some like group selection, smaller, you know, harvest or, and those just, uh, you'll hear people saying that it's good for grouse and it is, but it's not, it's not that effective or that helpful as compared to like a 20 acre harvest. I mean, that's where the, that's where the birds are going to be and that's where you're going to find them. Or they may not be in that, in that cut, but they might be in, you know, moving around that mature timber, you know, next to it. So yeah, for sure. I will say we don't, you mentioned the deer, uh, deer browse and impact yeah. regeneration. And we don't, uh, at least in like North Carolina and those areas, they, we don't, that issue, that's not really an issue for, uh, regeneration because the deer population is really low as well. Really? Really. It's a habitat issue. It's related to the same, same thing impacting grouse populations, lack of, or successional young forest habitat on, on public lands. I think that, I think the, uh, I mean, in six, in the six most western counties in North Carolina, for example, there is no uh, doe season during. There's no doe har- harvest allowed during gun season. That's just an indication of how you know low the population is, and you know, in conjunction with their goals for, to grow the population. So, have you seen that change over time too? I mean, do you recall there being a lot more deer when you were younger? Um, I, it's it's kind of county and, and region specific, and there are well on private lands deer the deer population in the Western North Carolina has been increasing, um, but on public land, I would say it's it's decreased, and the, the the state agency has the data to show it's decreased as well. The number of excuse me antler buck because it's like like I said, the it's very very limited for does, except in a few some counties. But yeah, they've got graphs showing since the early '90s when the timber harvest declined that also it the 
corresponded uh, the lines are match up pretty well with the antler buck, you know, harvest numbers per year and the number of timber, you know, acres per year going down too. So, yeah. And a lot of areas that used to be famous for deer hunting um, are, you know, people don't deer hunt there now because there just aren't that many deer. And what's weird is, or historically speaking, you know, Pisgah National Forest where, um, you know, Vanderbilt's and they had a, you know, the Pisgah Game Reserve was where they did a lot of the restocking of deer. This is like in, you know, the early 1900s when deer were not present on the landscape. And then they, they used those deer actually to trans, you know, the re, the, to uh, re, rebuild the populations in other states like Alabama and Georgia. And so what's ironic now is that those states have, you know, r- really tremendous deer herds and great deer hunting. But then in Western North Carolina, where the, they use those uh, seed, uh, seed deer that, you know, if you're a public land deer hunter, it's, it's going to be really tough. Slim pickings. Yeah. That kind of a- actually adds some interesting perspective to the sort of the age of the forest and lack of diversity thing, because that is, it's a concept that I'm familiar with and that, you know, usually what's good for grouse is pretty good for whitetail deer right. in in this neck of the woods, you know, early successional forest deer. I, you know, they seem to be much better at adapting to certainly our presence and our impacts on the landscape. I mean, they can, it's not like they're, I think they're, they adapt more easily than say a grouse where they can sort of move into other areas. But if the deer populations are going down in an area due to lack of early successional, you can imagine what that's doing to the grouse. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's the same concept. It's always cool to talk to somebody with, with sort of a local history and and experience on the ground in another area. I want to transition a little bit into congressional sportsman foundation kind of policy items. A few of the items, I mean, we've kind of, touched on a few of these things at a high level, but some of the things that, you know, would might specifically affect upland hunters in specific areas, maybe some important things that, that come to mind for you. I think we talked, you know, we just talked a lot about forest forest management was one of the things that I, I had written down. That's one of the things that you work on anything that we hadn't covered yet that CSF is working on in the forest management arena. Yeah. So, I mean, from the top, down, you you might say uh, at the federal level, the U.S. Forest Service has been um, looking at revising their uh, uh, NEPA regulations, so the National Environmental Policy Act. And so CSF has we've written a couple comment letters on that, just encouraging the, the Forest Service to consider uh, categorical exclusions um, that would enable the Forest Service to you know c- implement a project a lot more efficiently and not have to overanalyze projects because a lot of times. The Forest Service will put together a project, be really well developed, and then it'll just get, you know, hung up in public comment and opposition from, you know, groups that are opposed to forest management. Gotcha. And then, sorry. And then from, de- so NEPA revisions are, on- are ongoing right now. And then, um, you know, also some, nat- some of the national forests are doing their plan revisions, like Nantahala Pisgah. They're supposed to come out with their draft environmental impact statement next month, I think, but they've been saying that for like five years at this point. So, um, it'll be that'll be another opportunity to provide input um, for our organization as well as you know our partner organizations and, and member, as a member of the public you know anybody can comment I would encourage people to you know chime in and support the alternative that's going to be uh, beneficial to wildlife and then we also sometimes will engage on uh, individual habitat projects uh, if they're uh, more of a larger one. And like, for example, we just submitted a, a comment letter on uh, the Foothills landscape project in North Georgia. And, uh, you know, they're hoping to get some more habitat on the ground through that. So kind of 
kind of run the gamut from, you know, uh, big pol policy decisions that are influenced the Forest Service and their ability uh, to carry out timber projects down to the forest plan revisions, down to actual individual timber projects. And then, um, uh, of course, you know, previously to that, and my colleague, uh, Andy Treharn, uh, he's our federal, federal lands, uh, uh, expert, you know, I guess you would say a guru. He's, uh, he, he's uh, involved with, uh, and also Taylor Schmitz and, uh, the DC office, our federal relations coordinator. They're involved at more on the federal level, um, legislation that impacts, uh, forest management. For, uh, so whether last few years it was the fire bar and fix, Congressional Sports Foundation was uh, involved in that and, and worked on that in conjunction with a lot, you know a lot of other uh, hunting and conservation organizations. And then there's um, you know the, it, the Resilient Federal Forest Act, uh, Congressman Westerman's bill. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about one of the first things that you mentioned was so the U.S. Forest Service comes up with a plan which could involve active forest management, harvesting of trees and something like that, you know, they've decided that that's appropriate for the landscape. They want to do it. Right. And then it gets bogged down by some of these groups that are against active forest management. I mean, what is actually happening there? That is it just basically getting politics involved and just slowing down the process and bringing everything to a halt. I mean, what are the dynamics of that situation? Yeah, it kind of, it's kind of runs the gamut. I mean, um, so it's if the project is if they do an environmental analysis and they put it out for public comment, or actually before that they even bring in partners ahead of time and say we're trying to develop this project. This is what we want to do. So they try to front load it with you know public collaboration and public meetings, so the public does not feel cut out of it. And then hopefully if you you know work with the uh, some of those groups that traditionally push back against uh, projects that you know hopefully you'll get some more buy-in from them. But uh, not to be pessimistic, but what happens is the, a lot of times those groups will be involved or engaged, and then they still come out with an environmental analysis that's you know uh, considers all the impacts, and it looks like a good project. It'll include you know uh, culvert replacements for fish, and uh, you know this kind of run, uh, chestnut restoration projects, uh, fixing roads or banks that are impacting water quality. So it'll be kind of a comprehensive project in addition to. Uh, you know, prescribed a lot of prescribed fire. Now they try to implement that and, and some timber harvesting, but it, it gets held up because you know the a lot of times those groups, in addition to writing their own comment letters, will generate a lot of public comment, yep. and sometimes the the what they put out isn't isn't accurate and it misleads the public, and you know you can pull up stuff online and you know make make your own judgment on whether you think it's misleading or not but um you know a few years ago some of the groups put out when the plan revision and anyhow pisgah was getting rolling they put out a press release you know quote seven hundred thousand acres of industrial scale logging and it, uh, the public freaked out but um you know, my grandma even said what's going on john you know and so <laughs> uh that, that bogged down the process and you know but I would submit that if you took a, you know, your average person out in the woods and they show them a timber harvest three years later or five years later, they wouldn't, they wouldn't know the difference. And if you talk to them and educate them about the value and the benefit of it to wildlife, I mean, it's, um, it's pretty compelling. But what gets put out in the papers is a, a photo of a timber harvest uh, slash pile in December when it's all muddy and there's nothing growing. And that's what the public sees. And then the Forest Service gets all sorts of comments and, um, um, and then on top of that, then the groups, a lot of times the uh, groups opposed to forest management will 
you know, uh, work together and write a serious comment letter or object to the project. And then the Forest Service has to, you know, through their objection procedures and, you know, their, what they have to go through, they have to respond. And sometimes there's threats of litigation. And so yep. it's just kind of a multi pronged approach that's used to um, uh, slow down projects. And it's frustrating because then, you know, their, their ability to put habitat on the ground is severely limited because they're dealing with having to button proof an environmental analysis or do a full EIS versus, Hey, this is pretty good. We've got good safe standards in place. We've got, you know, follow all stream, stream, manage, stream side management zones. And just, you know, there's so much oversight on national forests compared to private land, but private land, even forest management is conducted really well. And the number of, you know, violate, they follow BMPs and their number of, you know, BMP violations are very low anyway. So um, it's not, it's not the timber management of the 1930s by any means, but that's kind of what sometimes the general members, general people, the public think if they're right. if they're not informed on it, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah, that is very unfortunate. I know one of my former colleagues, Linda Ordaway, she's a Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society biologist in that region. And she she's always, I mean, she's on the front lines, obviously, and she just talks about the public perception down there is just, it's not anything like what some of the other areas of the RGS network face. And, and it's just, she talks about how projects get beaten down, slowed down, bogged down all the time based on that public perception. And that's, you know, that's an also a little bit interesting. I've heard this a number of times in that the way that our forests are in this area, the upper great lakes there, it, where we have Aspen, Aspen regenerates so quickly that oftentimes, you know, the, the big, you still hear people talk about clear cuts and maybe they don't mm -hmm. like them. They don't like the big, huge clear cuts, but they, they very quickly start to look like forest again, you know, and right, forest is, right. is in air quotes, because if you understand what's going on here, you understand that it's a regenerating forest, but like you were saying, you know, a forest is, might not be prime until 15, 16 years later for you as a grouse hunter, but it's a slower regeneration. So that, that scar on the landscape, again, if you will, is there for a little bit longer from what I understand. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, we're going to, I mean, we're going to have like red maples and uh, yellow poplar come up really pretty quickly. And then the, yeah. you're going to have blackberries and all sorts of things coming in. So it'll look like a, you know, really young forest at that point. But, you know, yeah. I would submit if you took somebody out to harvest and three years later and they'd like, Oh, look at the blackberries, look at all the wildflowers, look at, you know, look at all, if you put a game camera out there and, you know, track the wildlife that use that prop, say it was a 80 year old yellow poplar stand, you know, not so much species diversity. And now it's a three or four year old, you know, early successional regenerated forest. I mean, the amount of wildlife that's going to be cruising through there from, you know, black bears to deer to turkey. I mean, it's going to be, be phenomenal. Um, and uh, the only thing that I might not like is a squirrel, but everything else is going to benefit <laughs> pretty good, I'd say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was, along those lines, I've always thought it'd be a interesting, um, you know, pr uh, public education campaign to, you know, have a time lapse camera of a regenerating forest over the years and just like say, wow, look at all the wildlife's coming through here. Look how, you know, beneficial it is to really show the public. And I think there's that Young Forest uh, website that, that has that same kind of concept and shows some of that, um, but really get some like, you know, high-end imagery and photos and get that out there and, and show the public what forest management's about. It's not just about, it's not about, it's not about getting rid of what's there. It's really about when you're cutting timber, you're actually really planning for your next 
for a stand. Yep. And that's, that's what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because the people that are, the people that are doing the management are thinking long term, and the people that are opposed to said management are often thinking in the very short term. Right, you know, what's lost? Just, right, exactly. Yeah, that's. It reminds me of an example. There's a there's a park near where I live, where I run my dog a lot, and it's a very familiar park for anybody that lives around here. But they they have some of these. Uh, it used to be an old farm, right? So like it used to be a farm at one time. Everything was cut over, just like you know the same story as kind of a lot of places, and then it. It's grown up. Now it's this wooded park, 600 acre park in middle of the city. It's an awesome place where a lot of people that live here can get exposed to nature. What, one thing it does have is a couple of, it had some like red pine plantations mm-hmm. where you have these red pines just growing in rows. And there's some cool trails and stuff that go through it. Cause it's kind of, you know, it's neat to see the trees in a straight line, but that's obviously not natural. That was, they were planted like that. Well, a couple of years ago, we had a big windstorm there and they decided to kind of go in there and clean up and open up some of the areas, cut some trees, take out some of the wind throw. And, uh, they had a long-term plan to have some pollinator meadows and stuff, which now it's all there. It's all beautiful. But I remember right after they cut it, I was walking my dog through there one day and I passed this lady on the trail and I was just going to walk by and not say anything. And she kind of like turned to me and said, I'm just I'm just standing here. I'm just looking at the carnage, you know, and she was, she was all very disappointed about the forestry. And I just, I don't even know if I said anything to her. I think I just kept walking by, but I would almost like to like run into her at that same spot now today where it's like, we've got, there's Aspen coming up on, on the fringes Mm -hmm. of, of this area. And there's this big, beautiful pollinator meadow. And it's like, again, she was thinking, she was thinking very short term at that time. Yeah, yeah, I've had similar experiences, and uh, I, I, I don't know if some of your agents or <clears throat> national forests near you or state lands near you do it, but you know some of those kiosks they put up that can kind of educate the public about the purposes of timber management and showing what yep. what showing what succession is and what why it's needed, and uh, I think that, I think those kind of educational campaigns are really important for your average person that's gonna you know stumble across a timber harvest and have no idea what it's about, you know? Yeah. And, and interesting. You say that this is of course a, a very heavily trafficked, uh, park. State, and so the they, park. Sure. Yeah. 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 But they know people are going to be in there. So they do have signs. They have a sign that explains the pollinator meadow and why that's there. And that they, they actually added a lot more signs about the history of the park and how it used to be a farm and stuff. So again, a little bit of education can go a long way. Absolutely. It's, just a, it's sometimes it's a, it's, it's hard to, to conceive like how do we you know how does this need to be explained to people but that's that's the reality yeah and i think i wish we could um you know we're not a congressional sports foundation is not a membership group um but you know this would be i've always wanted to do this just on my own or coordinate with some partners to you know take people out to harvest five years later and show them what it looks like so when when something another project's proposed they can actually see they can envision what the stand is going to look like in five years ten years fifteen years and, yeah. I, you know, I think that this kind of on the ground education is getting invaluable. All right, man, let's transition a little bit to away from, from forest management. Let's transition into sort of access and hunting. Um, some of the things that you guys get involved with there, Sunday hunting, that is something that I have become familiar with through paying attention to some of the things that rough grouse society is working on Sunday hunting in Pennsylvania, right. uh, was recently in the news, but other than that, I'm pretty unfamiliar with it. Sunday hunting has always been a thing in the states that I live and hunt in. Tell me about that and sort of the what people are up against, what you guys are doing yeah, to, yes. to work on that. Sure. Yeah. So just a quick background on Sunday hunting is uh, they're 
Sunday hunter restrictions are, you know, blue laws, which are just, you know, old puritanical laws uh, aimed at keeping people at home on the Sabbath. And, yep. and, um, and there's all sorts of examples of uh, laws through history. This, we can't sell apples on Sunday or you can't dance or, you know, alcohol. My dad can't sell cars on Sunday. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, today he can't. Nope, it still can't. Uh, and I'm pretty sure at least it's still a law, either that or just uh, none of the dealerships are open in Minnesota. But yeah, I always thought that wow. uh, the car dealerships can't be open on Sunday in Minnesota. So, wow. Yeah, so most of the ones that exist in you know my part of the world are you know, alcohol-based restrictions, which are you yep. know, slowly kind of being chipped away at. But as far as for, for hunters, you know, we still have a number of states with Sunday hunting restrictions. And that's something that the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, uh, as a member of the Sunday Hunting Coalition with uh, you know, a lot of our uh, partners like National Shooting Sports Foundation, Delta Waterfowl, uh, National Rifle Association, Safari Club International, you know, and then there's all, uh, those are some of the groups I've been working with most recently with, with those groups a lot, but, uh, the Sunday Hunting Coalition also, you know, as in the past has included a lot of the, uh, uh, critter, uh, critter NGOs, uh, as well that, you know, help out. So, um, but, you know, I can, I'll speak mostly to the states in my regions. I'm most familiar to them. Um, in, in West Virginia, um, they actually, the, the law has been changed for private and public land. So West Virginia no, no longer has any Sunday hunting restrictions. So, um, they've had two years of really su- successful implementation of the public lands and, um, you know, it's helped. You know, it's been a one day a week that somebody who has access to, you know, 1.5 million acres of public land, the state can now hunt. And I went over there after the law changed that fall, the first weekend of a grouse season and uh, hunted that Sunday morning just just because I could and I wanted to. And I saw and I drove from Virginia to hunt that weekend and I saw some other guys from Virginia hunt in. They're like, yeah, we're here because we can hunt on Sunday and we, you know, we can't do this in, in our home state. So that was pretty cool. Um, but Right now, currently in uh, Virginia, uh, the uh, like I said, you know, our big program is uh, working with the state legislative sportsmen's caucuses, and um, in Virginia, we were work uh, worked with uh, our uh, sportsmen's caucus co-chair, uh, Delegate James Ed- Edmonds. He introduced legislation this session that would have allowed public land Sunday hunting in, in Virginia. Unfortunately, it was uh, killed and uh, killed in committee, so it, it's dead for this year. But it, you know, really generated a lot of interest and got folks uh, interested in the issue and kind of put it back on the on the forefront of people's conversation about why does the state exclude hunters from accessing public lands that they specifically with wildlife management areas that they're the ones paying for those lands through the purchases of their hunting licenses and then the Pittman Robertson match you know through the American system of conservation funding so you know it's just in a you know 2020 how are you going to tell a certain user group that you can't access public lands even just as a citizen on a certain day of the week, you know, but in addition to that, when you're buying licenses and paying for those lands, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's, um, you know, kind of beat your head against the wall as a hunter. And, you know, I, professionally and then personally, you know, I hunt, I, <laughs> I hunt public land predominantly, not being from yeah. Virginia. I don't have a, you know, access to, I don't belong to a hunt club or anything. So I hunt, uh, public land. So that's one day a week, you know, to take my dog out woodcock hunting. So Virginia, Virginia does allow public land hunting for waterfowl, rail and uh, coon hunting, uh, but for, for nothing else besides that right now. So, yeah. And then, you know, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that it, it really highlights to me my, just lack of familiarity with Sunday hunting. It's never, it's something I've never been concerned with. Right. And I, I haven't even thought that deeply about it in that by banning Sunday hunting, you're telling a specific user group 
that they can't go out and use public lands. Whereas if you're just out there, you could just go out there and walk around. Right. You could be on lands, but you can't hunt. It's I've never even really thought about it in that sort of depth. And it's, it, it almost adds, it puts into perspective more for me. It's interesting. Yeah. You could fish, you can go, sh- you can go shoot, target shoot, but you, it, and they might, <laughs> right. you know, start as far as the noise impact, but that was an argument. Well, they're going to be shooting a lot more than somebody might shoot a few times if you're hunting. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, something that's, you know, like the North Carolina law was passed in, 1860, age 69 session. So that was the first year that North Carolina was uh, admitted to the union after the war. And so that was during reconstruction. And, I, you know, I've been trying to look at to look in the legislative history there to see what that the intent was. Um, Cause a lot of those laws at that time were, you know, kind of um, punitive uh, as retribution. So I'd be interested to see what, if there was any legislative history on that, but they just kind of carried forward to this day and uh, it's just been tradition. So a lot of people that are very pro hunted, um, maybe for religious reasons or other reasons are, are still have still might be opposed to Sunday hunting um, just because yeah. that's that's how it is. You know, they, they don't know anything different. So, you know, try to we just try to educate folks on the big picture and importance of it and say, you know, hey, 40 states or 40 more states allow Sunday hunting on public land. So in North Carolina right now is a good public opportunity comment. There will be uh, meetings coming up next month. Um, uh, six of them being held across the state because the status in North Carolina is that uh, the law changed in 2017. It, it changed, private land Sunday hunting is legal with uh, certain restrictions. Um, on public land, there's no public land Sunday hunting currently open. Uh, the the law, the Outdoor Heritage Enhanced Act, it was signed into law in July 2017, and it transferred regulatory authority from the state uh, legislature to to the state wildlife agency. And so the agency, uh, you know, has uh, not brought forth any uh, rulemaking proposals to open Sunday hunting on game land. So, you know, we've been working with partners trying to, and the agency is, you know, one of our big partners, of course, uh, but trying to just encourage them to you know, move forward with rulemaking. And so the, we're very excited about them doing some public meetings this summer and pulling some, pulling together some other efforts to weigh public opinion on it. But yeah, that's a big issue for me uh, professionally and personally, because like I said, I hunt public lands and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just really tough to, you know, hear, hear people say they, they don't want people hunting on Sundays when they're out there fishing and doing hiking or geocaching or right. anything like that. And we're the ones that are paying for those lands. Yeah. What about, I had jotted down right to hunt. Yeah, there's a, there are different, uh, states. There's a constitutional amendment, right to hunt fish and harvest wildlife. Um, the idea is to, uh, enshrine in the state constitution, uh, those rights and, um, you know, I was involved with the one along with some, a lot of those, a lot of those partner groups I mentioned uh, previously, um, to, on the effort, in the effort in North Carolina and, the the, it, the legislature passed the legislation and then it went to uh, voters during the, you know, the fall election and it passed it, uh, it was on the, on the ballot as a, uh, as your, excuse me, it was on the ballot and it passed, I think by 55%, a little lower than what I would have expected, um, but, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a state enshrined, uh, constitutional right to hunt fish and harvest wildlife. And there's a little more detail, de- detail to it than that. You know, you can't just, it's subject to reasonable rules. Uh, I don't have the language in front of me, but reasonable rules, uh, set forth by the state wildlife agency. So someone can't sure. say, you know, well, Hey, I got a right to hunt. I want to go, you know, shoot a deer at night with, with my spotlight, you know, so that's, yeah. that's not going to be, that's not, that's not going to hold, you know, be held up that sort of thing, but it does, um, you know, just give some further protections down the road because you know, North Carolina, for example, is 
you know, very pro sportsman state, but it's kind of slipping in that regard of the pop, the demographics changing. And, um, it's, you know, just, just I mean, like in Virginia this year, seeing a lot of anti sportsman's legislation, uh, mm-hmm. kind of running the gamut. Uh, then you look at the Northeast states or like California where they see a lot of, a lot, a lot of anti sportsman legislation. Um, so in North Carolina, they got that on the books there and hopefully, um, you know, that's what the developers like. Well, why do we need that? I don't understand the threat. Like, well, it's not may not be a huge. Some of these issues may not be a threat today, but maybe a threat in twenty years. So that was that sure. was a good effort to get on the books. And I think don't quote me, but I think there are about over twenty states have those constitutional amendments right now. Okay, there are two more that I jotted down that have I think some pretty direct impacts on upland hunting. One of them is the apprentice hunting licenses, which is that's something that recently you know within the last maybe decade or so was was put in minnesota where you can now you can it's my understanding trying to lower the barrier for somebody to get out there and try hunting so by telling somebody that they can go grab this apprenticeship license without having gun safety without having to jump over all the other hurdles they can go out with somebody that is experienced hunter and they can hunt for a season or whatever it is Talk, talk about that a little bit yeah, it's basically you hit the nail on the head there. It's a try before you buy uh, principle where somebody uh, can kind of jump or um, not have to go through uh, full license and buying requirements or hunter education if you're out with a, you know, a person. Each state has, they're written differently in each state, but how, how the, you be out with a licensed hunter of a certain age, you can then, you know, go out and some states it's a one year, some it's a three year. Um, I think South Carolina right now is currently looking at the, uh, uh, removing all limitations for the year restrictions on that. So, but yeah, it's a, I think that's part of the family families of field uh, initiative. And a lot of our partner groups have been heavily involved with that too. Cause it's a, you know, it's just, it's one less thing. It's like re- reducing barriers to participation in hunting. So it's just, you know, it's yep. just a, one of the, you know, like a multi-pronged approach to uh, working on, you know, the R3 issue, hunter recruitment, retention and reactivation. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that is, I think, I think it can't be, understated really the importance of that obviously the downward trends of hunter numbers and stuff have been talked about at length but i know that at project upland i know that we reach a good like a significant number of people that are new to upland hunting or interested in it i'm sure there are people that are pinging and and hitting our website that are they're just checking things out you know they're just dipping their toe in the water and it kind of kind of gets the wheels turning in my head i mean i almost think like we should have we should have some resources on what are the states that you can hunt with an apprentice you know what are the what are the easiest ways to get out there and and try upland hunting i mean that's that's something that's really important in an age where we pretty much need everybody that we can get for to a certain extent yeah absolutely i mean we could help i could help provide resources if you need them on the different state breakdowns on their apprentice licenses um cool. but then of course your state agency would be a good resource and then you know probably any of the uh the ngos like rough grouse society or pheasants forever they they probably yeah. you know, national wild turkey federations involved in those efforts too so but yeah uh by i mean as you know uh hunter you know declining hunters is a big issue because a you care about the sport and you know, the, the, the point that we stress a lot and, you know, we try to uh, reinforce with policymakers is, you know, hunters are licensed buyers and those licensed buyers uh, through the American system of conservation funding with the, with the wildlife and sport fish restoration acts, they support the vast majority of conservation funding in the United States. And, uh, you know, we've got good resources on our website broken down by each state historically in each year. So like in 2019 in, Vir- in Virginia, I think it was last year through 
hunting fishing and um the Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson funded, I think it was over $62 million that Virginia received through sportsmen and women last year. And obviously uh, recreational shooters, shooters are a big uh, component of that too. And very important yep. to it. So, and then, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, don't realize that that's, that, that funding is not just putting in food, let paying for state agency to put in food plots on public land. I mean, that's, that's helping the, the agency do, do a lot of things. Um, and manage for non-game species as well. So, and then, you know, the other thing is um, like uh, motor fuel boat tax. You don't want to overlook that. That's a big component of Dingle Johnson and, you know, put it in access and boat ramps and that sort of stuff is really important for increasing angler access. Sure. Last thing I had written down would be some of the dog related issues that you've, you get involved with anything come to mind there? Yeah. I mean, in my States, I haven't had anything, uh, you know, the Northeast States, uh, like Maine has, you know, the bear hunting, uh, as we well says bear hunting general ban, but, and I can't speak to that because I'm not intimately familiar with it, but my colleague, uh, uh, Joe Mullen or Brent Miller would be up to speed on that. But, um, in general, as we have, you know, issue briefs on these on our website, um, uh, substandard kennel issues, tethering issues where might be, um, what, to, uh, the legislator might seem like a well-intended piece of legislation to, you know, uh, reduce or uh, quote, protect an animal or protect uh, dogs uh, might actually be, you know, uh, animal rights group pushing legislation that's going to impact the ability of a sportsman to keep and maintain their, their hounds for bear hunting, um, deer hunting, um, and, or just, you know, temperature requirements for kennels and uh, yep. length of the, you know, length of a tether, like, well, if it's too long, it might be heavy and actually be more dangerous for a dog. So, you know, we work closely with, uh, you know, a lot of our partners on that. You know, the American Kennel Club is really good on those issues, um, but they're, they can be kind of nuanced and hard, but, you know, it's a, it's a lot of education to, to stay on top of that, to make sure that, that, you know, you can keep maintain a dog so you can keep hunting. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So John, you mentioned that the Congressional Sportsman Foundation is not a membership group. So it's not like right. we're, we're going to put a big call to action out there, people to go sign up and join CSF. What could, what are ways for people to get involved, get more informed and potentially make an impact with you guys? What should they do? Well, we don't, um, a few things, but we do have, we don't have a basic, like a $35 membership, but we do have a sport and society um, kind of a, you know, a more significant contributor level. If you want to get involved that way and you, you get okay. some perks to that, get invited to some, some uh, events and uh, great, great things around the country. Uh, but I would definitely encourage people to sign up for tracking the capitals. It's our, uh, 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 leg legislative tracking service and you can create an account on the website and it's got different functions on it, but you can track by which state you care about, by which issue. So you can click on Minnesota substandard kennels or you know indiana forestry and so and it'll, it'll you'll get uh, email updates and you can tailor it to what you care about you know um, it's a good way to stay on top of excuse me legislation um and then let's see another way um it's for that for the also our uh, website's a good resource for people like the, our, the issue briefs particularly are really helpful and then we do of course have you know social media accounts you can follow and we'll put out action alerts from time to time depending on if it's a you know something to weigh in through a you know grassroots perspective Got it. Uh, what is your website? Congressionalsportsman.org. Congressionalsportsman.org. All right, cool. We'll have a link to that. Okay. Ready for the bird hunter lightning round? Sure. Let's go. What you got? <laughs> All right. Shotguns. 
What shotgun do you pick up most often when you head out to go up on hunting? Uh, I've got a Benelli Ultralight that I like to use. It's a, you know, if I'm hunting in the mountains, you're walking 10, 12 miles and it's a long day. And, um, sure. you know, um, you might, you know, look, I know a lot of bird hunters might be like, well, you need to carry a 28 gauge, you know, over and under that oh, sort of come thing. On but we're, we're, we're all, all inclusive here on the project. I, mean, I appreciate podcast. that. So, you know, I've killed some <laughs> birds on the third, on the third shell and I'm not ashamed by that. So, you know, uh, we got, well, maybe there are fewer opportunities with fewer birds. So I'm going to, you know, capitalize on it where I can. And if I'm woodcock sure. hunting, I've got a little side by side 20 I carry, but, um, yeah, mostly that Benelli for gra- for grouse because what's the what gauge is the Benelli? It's a twelve. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. So hey, you can shoot light loads out of that. No, I don't buy those uh, those uh, <laughs> hipster loads. I buy the uh, <laughs> I buy the number sixes and you know heavy you know heavy brass and <laughs> shoot the rhododendron if I need to. <laughs> <laughs> you know that rhododendron stuff. That sounds like a nightmare. From I was talking to Stephen Faust a couple podcasts ago. Oh yeah, I know Stephen. Uh, we were, yeah we were comparing that to the because he hunts up here the hazel brush here. Mm-hmm. But the hazel brush drops its leaves, and the rhododendron pr- pretty much stays green all year round, right. doesn't it? Yep, yeah, it's yeah. Green yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a nightmare to me. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful tree, but uh, yeah, there's not no shotgun shell. I mean, <laughs> nothing's gonna get through it if a bird's <laughs> moving through rhododendron or mount laurel for that case. Yeah. <laughs> all right. How about how about boots? What uh, what pair of boots are you strapping on most of the time? Uh, if I'm woodcock hunting, I've got just uh you know a pair of muck boots I like to walk around in because you know the woodcock hunting is especially around the Piedmont of uh, Virginia, it's, uh, you know, flatter and, you know, you're not really getting into some stuff. And then I've just got a pair of old Zamberlins for grouse hunting. I, you know, they're kind of blowing out right now with some duct tape on them. I need to, <laughs> I need to upgrade and I've, I've been uh, working on that, some different options right now. But yeah, just a uh, old pair of Zamberlins and they're light and they get me around because, um, you know, when you're walking a lot of miles, I, I don't like heavy boot. I had a pair of whites back in the day, which were great. Uh, like being out working out west and stuff um but they're just they're too heavy and so i got a really the lightest pair of boots i could get i've got a knee problem too getting old here so <laughs> <laughs> you don't look that old john <laughs> oh, i feel old <laughs> all right last one for you an essential piece of gear that you try not to leave home without or you'd be real mad if you didn't for my dog or for me it could be anything really, you know, if you're, if you're going out hunting, you're going out bird hunting for a day, something, something that you try to bring could be a vest, could be a, a favorite hat, anything really. Yeah. I started carrying a face mask actually, just a little, you know, really? or a little neck gator type thing. Cause when the, if the wind's blowing it, um, you know, that's just like the most exposed area. Cause you know, you've got on, you know, a pair of car hearts and boots and long John and, a, you know, I've got a, you know, windproof jacket now I wear or some flannels or something, but, um, you know, putting on a that putting on a little neck gator can go a long way if the winds rip into really because it gets down in your shirt, and makes you cold. You know, so sure. <laughs> I don't I don't like wearing a toboggan when I hunt. I like to be able to hear a little bit more, and um, unless it's really really cold, I'll put it. I'll slip a toboggan on. Yeah, gotcha. I've uh, I've thought about the the facial protection a little bit. Obviously, I do wear eye protection when I'm when I'm hunting grouse, but I've often thought about maybe it's the Minnesotan in me, but I've often thought about I should uh, I should just like wear my hockey helmet through the <laughs> through the yeah. some of the some of the grouse woods because you get whipped by a couple of uh aspen aspen sure. twigs in the face and uh, you get frustrated pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
I've been through that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, John, this has been this has been a lot of fun. I hope people gain some familiarity with Congressional Sportsman Foundation, and uh, I really enjoyed talking with you about uh, little southeastern bird hunting. Uh, it would be awesome if uh, if our paths cross in the field someday. I would I would love to do that. Absolutely, but I certainly appreciate you taking the time to speak with myself and the Project Up and Podcast listeners. Any final thoughts? No, just thanks so much for having me. I appreciate what you do to promote bird hunting and get people interested in the sport. And uh, yeah, if, it, uh, if you have, you know, if you or any of your listeners have any, you know, uh, issues impacting their ability to hunt and fish, you know, feel free to uh, drop us, a, shoot me an email, and let, let us know. We can uh, look into some stuff. We're uh, willing to do everything we can to keep people uh, out in the woods hunting and fishing. All right. Good deal, John. I'll make sure your contact info is in the uh, the show notes and uh, we'll make sure people can find it there. All right. Yes, sir. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care, man. Have a great weekend. All right. See you, John. That's it for this episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. Quick reminder, the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonubo Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, CZ USA, Turnbull Restoration, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget, you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is leave us a rating. Leave the podcast a review in your podcast app, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, or send us some feedback or guest suggestion. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.